Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Amen. Amen. How are we doing this morning? We doing good? Well, it's just now 12 o'clock, so how are we doing this afternoon? All right, good. I've got to be honest with you. Um, when I make it to heaven, should that day come, or when that day, I should say, comes, not if. I do have the assurance of salvation. When that day comes, uh, and I hear the angels, if, yeah, uh, I hear the angels sing, I'm going to be literally prostrate because, all, I mean, I hear Rachel sing, and I'm crying. You know what I'm saying? And you put a whole legion of angels singing. Weren't they amazing? That song was not amazing. Let's put our hands together for Rachel and this worship team. It's phenomenal. It really is. And so if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Pastor Craig, and uh, just serve alongside Pastor Chad and his wife, Michelle, my wife, Meredith, and I do. And uh, we advocate team leadership, and we do so even in the midst of our community. And uh, I just tell you, there's so much opportunity. A man's gift makes room for him to ministry. It brings him before the presence of many kings. And if any of you have a desire to serve in a capacity and the Lord speaks to you, don't hesitate to go out to the Next Steps table. We have giving gifting teams. Yesterday, went out to downtown Woodstock and handed out waters for free to people and invites and invited them to church. There's just always an opportunity to get involved in what God is doing here. And if you believe that, just say Amen. Amen and amen. We're in a series called The Story of the Kingdom. The Story of the Kingdom. And last week we looked at holiness in His kingdom. And today we're going to look at a different subject. If you didn't receive a message card when you came in, uh, you can raise your hand right quick. It's just a guide to keep you along. Um, I will just say in addition to this, if you open up version, the Bible app on your phone, you can click your tab and hit events and go down to dwelling place and all the message will be in front of you there. Uh, it is live right now and so you'll see the slides and the text and the scriptures all in front of you there as well. But uh, I just uh, want to share a subject that's really burning in my heart. I want you to listen to me clearly. What I'm about to share with you today really is the reason that moved me beyond constantly looking at people and not feeling the compassion that Jesus had for people. I don't know if you've ever been in this state before where you want to be passionate and compassionate for people, but you're not experiencing the love that Jesus seemed to experience when he looked at people that we're like sheep without a shepherd. I want to speak to you today about what it means to see in his kingdom. And I want to tell you from the outset, I'm a little bit anxious about this message because there's two, two areas, I guess. Number one, about me misunderstanding what the Lord's saying, because I do believe God is going to speak to us today. But then the second one is you misunderstanding what I'm saying. And, um, and this is the foolishness of preaching. I, I wish sometimes he just spoke all the time just directly to us, no uh, mediated means, but that's not the way his kingdom works. And every time, God, I want to hear you, so many times he pushes us back to one another. This is the foolishness of preaching. God chooses to use vessels to preach to us. Now, anytime he does that, there's the opportunity for misunderstanding, right? And so I want to pray that God would speak so clearly and give us great grace as we hear what he's saying to us. I want to read one verse of scripture in John chapter 9, verse 39, of which will be the, 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 the crux of our text today in John chapter 9. And, uh, and then we'll pray. John 9, 39. This is what Jesus said speaking. He said, I came into this world for judgment. Everybody say judgment. This is his kingdom. The inauguration of his kingdom is the birth of Jesus Christ. And he came so that those who do not see may see. And those who do see may become blind. 
Interesting. Jesus' judgment in the world is for those who do not see to become able to see, and for those who do see or claim to see that they would indeed become blind. That's the judgment that God wants to bring to the world, to the church, to each one of us today. And before we pray, I just want to say I was horrified as well as you were when you woke up this morning with the 50-plus people that died in Orlando last night. As you know, we have a church plant there, and um, he does have connections to Islamic terrorist groups and he killed 50 he was a security armor security guard that got an ar-15 and just destroyed lives there's another 100 people that are that are hurting and so what we can do as the church this morning is we can extend our passion and our prayers to be with the victims of the families and uh, that we never become numb to this in our nation that's not our role as a church to feel what jesus feels and let's pray not only that uh, the love of christ should be seen but the church of jesus christ we have a church plant right there in orlando that the church plant literally would uh, find opportunity to minister in ways that only Jesus Christ can do and bring peace to those families. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray great grace. Great grace upon us today as we hear your word that, God, we would hear specifically, Lord, what it is that you want us to hear and that, God, you would bring your judgment and enable us, God, to see the things you want us to see and make us blind in just the right ways to the things you don't want to see, to God, make us deaf to the things you don't want us to hear, that we might hear what you want us to hear. And God, we pray for those uh, victims' families that are hurting, so hurting, God, that, Lord, you would extend grace, that, Lord, they would feel supernatural peace, peace that transcends all understanding, God. And that, Lord, in the midst of this turmoil, God, your church would shine brighter, that, God, that, Lord, your, your darkness would not be able to comprehend even the light that's shown through the believers in that city. That, Lord, the love and the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ would prevail. And that, God, you would give a witness and you would give a testimony and you would give a knowledge of your goodness, God, to these families that are hurting deeply today. We know, God, you're only able to bring the peace that transcends understanding. And we do so today in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen and amen. You know, when, when we talk about messages like I'm sharing this morning, I, I don't want to be Dr. Downer, but I believe there are times that we must take stock of what's wrong in the house of the Lord. You know, the Bible says that judgment begins in the house of the Lord. And there's always these places in our lives where the walls are broken down, where we have to rebuild walls. There are places of what we would call deep brokenness that need to be repaired. And I know for me, one of my pet peeves when we talk about the church is often sometimes we overgeneralize and we say things like, well, the church today is just dot, dot, dot. And I always say, well, we don't have the ability to speak about the universal church because when we make statements like the church today is just dot, 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 we don't know what Jesus is doing in his global church. We don't know that the church in China looks like what we're facing here or the church in Saudi Arabia. So I don't think we're capable of speaking for the whole church. And I want you to understand that, okay? I'm not saying or claiming that I know a universal word, but I believe that when it comes to what I am discerning about our churches... I'm talking about Western Christianity, evangelicals. Particularly, I've seen this in this whole you know, political scene that often many of us get wrapped up into, is, is that we're deeply, and when I say deeply, I mean that as a strong adverb. We are deeply suffering from a lack of moral judgment. What do you mean? We're making moral judgment every day that we live. I walk through a... A, 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 a place yesterday in an in a, in a airport, and I made moral judgment upon every person you see. We all make moral judgment by what we see. And I think we have a moral deficiency when it comes to seeing what God wants us to see. That at the root of our problems, if you'll follow me for a minute, is a lack of ability to literally discern what is actually happening in the world and what the role of the church is in the midst of that. 
We don't see that. We're sometimes blinded to what Jesus wants us to really see. And this is what's so amazing is that the promise of Jesus and the threat of Jesus, which are the same, we just read it in John 9, is that he comes so that what we can't see, we see, and what we think we're seeing, we'll no longer see. This is what Jesus promises to do for our church today. To blind us to the things that we need to be blind to so we can see what we need to see. And if you will, we have been stupefied by the cares of this life and by sin that truly hasn't been turned away from. And even by our success in ministry in worldly terms, that we have become insensitive to what the Holy Spirit's doing. And we've become hypersensitive to what the Spirit of the age is doing. And listen, folks, when we get to a place where we're insensitive to what the Holy Spirit's doing in our church and Holy Spirit's doing inside of our community, and we become hypersensitive to what the age and the culture around us is doing, then what happens is we are diseased in our eyes, if you will. That we can't see what God's doing, and we can't not see what the enemy's doing. Now, folks, when we find ourselves in that condition, you know we've lost balance. We've lost balance. We're not seeing clearly. And I think in some ways, we're like the church in Laodicea where we think in America we're rich and clothed. We think we see, and yet the judgment of the Lord on our nation is that you are blind, and you are naked, and you are poor, and that blindness, you don't even recognize you can't really see what God wants to see. This is what happened in Laodicea, a church that had become compromising, a church that had become lukewarm. And I think that blindness comes out of our success, out of the wealth of our experiences in the world. And over, over time, what happens is it weakens our perception, and suddenly we're not quite clear about what God is doing. We're clear about what the enemy's doing. You ask somebody, hey, what's God saying to you? They can't tell you. But you ask them what the enemy's saying, and they can tell you a Ph.D. dissertation about what the enemy's saying. Whenever we are morally stupid, folks, and I'm not saying we're stupid, I'm saying morally, then we confuse our wisdom for the Lord's wisdom. I want to show it to you, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. He said, trust in the Lord with all your, lean not to your own, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your path. Listen, when you can't quite see the Lord or what he's doing, you think it's the Lord leading you, but really it's your, only, your own heart leading you. What happens is the enemy begins to, to literally convince you that, the, 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 that we're obedient when we're really disobedient. That we're leaning on our own understanding and really we're confident that we're leaning in his wisdom. And this is where people get off course. And this is the enemy's great trick to convince us we're living in step with the spirit when really we're setting our own rhythm. And I think from time to time, I know from my life personally and corporately, there are moments in time of clarity to see, no, we're out of step with the spirit. Anybody ever had a moment like that? I'm out of step with what the spirit's doing in my family. I'm out of step with what the spirit's doing in this community. And we need those moments. That's the judgment of the Lord to blind us to what we don't need to see and help us to see what he wants us to see. Is anybody with me so far? This is what it means to see in the kingdom of God. Okay, to blind our eyes to what we no longer need to see. Now, we're going to look out of John chapter 9 today. If you want to follow along with me, I'm going to read straight through that chapter. John chapter 9, we're going to allow the scripture to speak. I'm going to give commentation as we go, but let's let the scripture speak to us. And before we look at John chapter 9, I'm going to share a personal story. My wife and I, in 2006, we, uh, uh, 2007, we moved from uh, Cleveland, Tennessee to Atlanta. We went to the northeastern sector up of 85 um, and, and then up 985, but we were at, uh, in Brazelton where we live, but we were at a church in Gainesville, Georgia called Free Chapel, and we served there in student minister for multiple years. And in that church, um, 
The first day I was hired, the executive pastor set me down, and I think this story is going to illustrate what I'm trying to share today. He set me down and he said, Craig, being a student pastor here at this church, he said, the first day you walk in on a Sunday with a suit will probably be your last day of employment here. Now, what he was saying is that I don't want you ever to be out of context or out of touch with teenagers. I want you to be accessible. I want you to be open. And I want them to feel comfortable to come to you, not in a suit. And I know most millennials do not own suits. We know this. I was in a wedding, not in a wedding, helped to perform a wedding yesterday or the, yeah, the day before, the night before. And um, instead of having a groomsmen rent the tuxes, he just had them buy suits. It was the same amount of cost. And they were all excited because none of them own suits. That's true. This is the culture we live in. And I remember talking to him, and as I talked to him, he said this, and I didn't. You know, for it was very normal in that culture to wear jeans, and I would preach much like this. And I preached that way on multiple occasions. But then the Lord called us to Cleveland, Tennessee, to a church that was 108 years old and the longest withstanding Pentecostal congregation in all of North America. Five generations with 100-plus retired pastors. And there would be multiple times, folks, I didn't know any different because the pastor didn't demand that I had to wear a suit until a couple months into it. And then I would get text. Make sure when you show up tomorrow, if you're preaching, that you're in a suit, right? And so I would get up, and I would get up to preach, and there would be times I would be preaching in jeans, and I would have no tie or no jacket on, and I would clearly speak what I thought prophetically the Lord was saying, and yet when I got off the stage and interacted with people, each of them had no idea what the Lord just spoke to them because all they were hearing was no suit, no suit, no suit, no tie, jeans, 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 no tie, no tie, no tie, no suit, no suit, no suit, no tie, no tie, jeans, jeans, jeans. They had a grid work that prevented them from hearing what God even wanted to say. Now, listen, I'm still a person in construction. I'm God's workmanship, right? And so there were times where spitefully I would wear a suit and walk into the sanctuary, and no joke, 20 to 30 more people would talk to me that would never talk to me on any other Sunday just because I was wearing a suit. I know I should have not done that, but y'all pray for me, all right? Now, with that, there were other times I wore a suit because I wanted to become all things to all men that I might, what, see them say. They might hear me. So I'm not going to say I'm going to not wear a suit just because you got to look beyond it. But what Jesus is saying is if we can't see beyond the framework or grid work, we need the judgment of the Lord to blind us to what we don't need to see so we can see what he wants us to see. Or else we'll miss the very Lord speaking right in front of our face. Jeans, 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 no tie, no tie, no tie, no tie, no tie. We don't hear anything else. Why, Craig? Because all of us have imprinted on us ways of understanding the world. We were born into families. We were born into communities. We were born into areas that this is how we make sense of the world. It's built into us. It's built into those people that I was preaching to, many of those. If the preacher doesn't have a tie on and a suit, yell and run and say, that's Satan. You know what I'm saying? Like, nothing he says could be true. Because I was even asked multiple times, confronted in the altar, that I was, I was grieving the Lord by what I was doing on stage. Multiple times. Do you think they heard anything else I was saying or the Lord wanted to say through me? No way. Because they had ways in which the grid imprinted on them and they couldn't see beyond it. You got pink glasses. Everything you see is pink. You can't see anything else but everything being tainted as pink. They had a grid that told them how to respond so they couldn't hear the Lord. And all of us have that, whether we realize it or not. We make sense of the world in a way that's at odds with the gospel, folks. We do. It makes us see things we shouldn't and keeps us from seeing things we should see. So when the Lord is speaking, we're seeing jeans, 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 no tie, no tie, no tie, rather than what God's really saying. What do we need, Craig? We need the Lord to come right now in our midst and blind us to what we don't need to see and enable us to see what we need to see. And here's what's amazing. That's Jesus' promise in his kingdom. For this reason, judgment, I've come to the world to make those who do not see 
and to make those who think they're seeing blind. That's what he says. This is his judgment. So we need the Lord, and Jesus promises to do this. And listen, folks, the gospel of John is concerned with this. And I want you to see this because John, which is my favorite gospel, it has been for years. This is the controlling metaphor. Now, you would read a lot of books, and a lot of different people will say John has a lot of different metaphors, and he does. But I think the most controlling metaphor through the whole gospel is that God wants to bring vision to the blind and blind those who see. Think about how the gospel starts in John chapter 1, first chapter of the entire book. And the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh. And then we get to verse 18, and the Scripture says that no one has ever seen, come on, get with me this morning, no one has ever seen, but it's God the only Son who's close to the Father's heart, who has made Him known. And now the rest of the Gospel, the one who was up in the Father's chest, which is the Son, is now going to reveal to us who His Father is. This is the premise for the whole gospel. Now notice this. He said no one has ever seen God. Now that don't seem too shocking unless you read the verse before. And the verse before says that the that law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. And if we know anything about Moses, his whole story is the person who saw God, you remember in Exodus, or, or excuse me, Deuteronomy, he was put in the cleft of the rock because he wanted to see the Lord's glory. Jesus' culture written a lot of songs about this, right? Don't want to go into the promised land unless your presence goes with us. He tucks him in the cleft of the rock. He says, I can't see my front side. He walks past him. He opens his eyes. He lets him see his backside, and he says, that's my glory, right? Well, notice, Moses went into the tent of meeting and saw and talked to the Lord as a man does to a friend. He comes back out, and his face is so radiating with glory, he puts on a veil. And John is saying, whatever that experience was, it was not seeing God. There's no other way we can make sense of the scripture. For no one has ever seen except Jesus. Whatever we think that experience of Moses was, it was not fully seeing God. Well, he, he's not okay with that because he's going to go to the end of the book, the end of John's gospel, and it's the story of doubting Thomas. Look at these bookends. Thomas has the ultimate missed opportunities on summer vacation, and Jesus shows up post-resurrection. He walks into the room. All the other disciples find him. And see him, and he's not there. And he comes back and says, hey, did I miss anything? Oh, yeah, nothing much. Just the Son of God radiating glory from his body in a way that no human's ever seen. But no, you didn't miss too much. And he says, unless I, what, put my hands in his side and put my hands in his hands, I will not believe. So seven days later, Jesus says, okay, you'll have it. He comes through the wall, and Jesus stands there, and, and Thomas drops to his knees. And he says in verse 28, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, oh, come on, Thomas. Are you serious? You're believing because you've seen my body in resurrection form? He said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It's almost like John is trying to say what? He's trying to get us to understand that, that just when you think you know what seeing God is... You don't know what seeing is. You think you want what Moses had. We even sing songs about this. Show me your glory like Moses, right? You think you want what Moses had. You think you want what Thomas had. But there is something he wants for us that's more than seeing his glory and our faces light up with fire. And there's something more Jesus wants for us as his church than sitting at his feet and putting his hands, our hands in his hands. And folks, if that doesn't shock you, then you're not reading John 1 correctly. John wants to shock you. He wants your jaw to drop open and think, no one's ever seen God, so what Moses had wasn't seen him? Nope. No one's ever seen God? That's what he's saying. That God wants us to see something more. 
John means to shock us. He means to make strange the gospel we think we know. That's not seeing God. And listen, folks, everything else between that story in John 1 and John 20 is that you think what you see is what you know and what you fail to see, and that comes to a head in the story of a man born blind. So I want you to see with that lens how this story is now painted. John chapter 9, begin verse 1. Notice this. John has a righteous sense of humor. This is powerful, folks. And I'll explain it to you. As he walked along, that's Jesus. Jesus saw a man blind from birth. Now, let me ask you a question. Would the man blind from birth be able to see Jesus? No. But Jesus sees a man who is blind. So that means Jesus sees a man who can't see himself. Now, that would not be so funny, except how does chapter 8 end? Chapter 8 ends, if you go back and look at your Bible, it ends in this way. Jesus, in chapter 8, says he saw Abraham, and Abraham saw his day, and he rejoiced. And the crowd say, you're crazy. Abraham's been dead for centuries. How can you, living right now on the earth in 33 AD, claim to have seen a man who lived thousands of years ago? And he's been dead for centuries, Jesus. And Jesus, in that moment, having claimed to have seen a man who's been dead for centuries, the people say, no, you can't see him. He then makes himself disappear. Go read it. And he walks through the crowd, disappearing. Jesus does this. And then he appears on the other side. And when he appears on the other side, he immediately sees a man who can't see him. <laughs> Did you catch that? I saw a man that's dead. And no, you didn't. He's been dead. Okay, so I'm going to go invisible. And I'm going to walk through you because you want to kill me with stones. I'm going to come out on the other side of you. And now I see a man who can't see me. This is what John's trying to do. He's trying to flip the reversal of sight and blindness. He wants those who people who think they see to all of a sudden see that you don't see. He wants those who don't see to be able to see what he wants them to see. Now follow along with me for the next few moments. Jesus is what's happening. He sees a man born blind. And that, folks, is the root of the gospel in our story because the truth is we are seen before we ever see. Amen? Can I preach just for a few moments right here? This blind man, without knowing it, is about to be brought into the redemption of Jesus Christ. And the hope he has is he is seen before he ever sees. It's not that he sees Jesus and goes to Jesus. It's that Jesus sees him and goes to him. Come on, anybody know what it was like the day that you didn't see Jesus, but Jesus saw you off and he moved towards you. And the gospel is not that you see Jesus and make a movement towards him. It's that Jesus sees you in your blindness. He sees you in your diseased, broken state. And he begins to move towards you. This is what Jesus is doing. Long before we come to know the Lord, we are known by the Lord. That's why Paul said in Galatians, you know the Lord. Uh, let me change that better than that. You are known by the Lord. The gospel begins not with my movement towards God. The gospel begins with God's movement towards me. I don't seek the Lord until he seeks me. I don't call on the Lord until he calls me. And the moment he calls my name, I come alive. He gives within me a response of faith to respond to his gracious intervention in my life. Jesus sees a man who has been born blind from birth and he walks towards him. Now, we see the first greed. I want you to see this. Verse 2. The disciples, that's the first group, we're going to look at three groups, saw this same man. They saw him. And they said, Rabbi, which teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, notice the filter and the grid and the lens. Jesus sees a blind man. The disciples see the same man, but they don't see the same man. Anybody ever been there before in ministry? Jesus sees a man. They see the same man, but they don't see the same man. And their grid has predetermined what they can and not 
can and cannot see about this man. So they know it's either A or B. There's no other chance for C, D, E, F, G. They have a grid. There's two options. It's A or B. Jesus, you pick A or B. I don't care if you think Jesus is C, D, E, or F. It's A or B. I know that. And what is the A? The A is this man sinned, and that's why he's blind. Or B, his parents sinned against him. So now he's suffering their consequences. This is their grid. This is their framework. This is what they see, and they're only able to see. They're not able to see what Jesus sees. They only see this. This is all they see, A or B. Jesus, just tell us which option it is. I want to know, did this man sin, or did his parents sin? Which tells us what their lens reveals. Listen, church, is, 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 is there is two basic truths to all humans, that we are sinners and we're sinned against. Their lens reveals we're sinners and we're sinned against. And that's most people I interact with. That's their only two options of lens too. They're, they're, we always talk, people are sinners, people are sinners, people are sinners. But listen, what Jesus is saying, before you are a sinner, that means more fundamental than the fact that you've been sinned against and the fact that you are a sinner is that you are literally a child of God made in the image of God that literally is claimed by God for the purposes of God. And that is deeper than the fact that you sin or you've been sinned against. But they can't see that. They can't see this man as a child of God, claimed by God for the purposes of God. Their lens would not let them see what Jesus wanted them to see. They had a framework. And Jesus rebukes them. So he says in verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned. It's not A or B. But he says he was born blind so that God's work might be revealed in him. Let me pause and just say from the outset, Jesus is not explaining the cause of this man's disease. In other words, he's not saying God blinded him before birth and God did that to later heal him. That's a card trick, okay? What he's saying is don't ask a question about the cause of this man's blindness. Ask a question of what God means to do about this man's blindness. Can I say that again? Don't be so preoccupied with the cause of why people are the way that they are. Start looking and asking God about what he wants to do in their present and their future in light of who they have been, in light of the sins against them, and in light of the sins they've committed. This is what Jesus wants. Don't look at the man's past to find the source of his blindness. Come on, I'm preaching better and you're letting on. Look to his future to see what God wants to do with his blindness. Look to his future to see how God wants to use him for his glory. If we just made that adjustment, folks, and I shut down the sermon right here. If every one of us walked out of this room and we just made the adjustment to stop trying to guess what went wrong in every person's life that we find and we try to track down the cause of their wickedness or the cause of their brokenness and we stop trying to guess the cause of their unlikableness, although they're unlikable, it's okay to know that they're unlikable, but we could say, God, what are you going to do with this unlikable person for your glory? How are you going to transform this disease and brokenness into something that's more beautiful than they could ever dream by their self? They're broken and diseased, and Jesus is saying to us today, if I'm going to bring my judgment to your church, that means you'll stop trying to figure out why people are broken, and you'll say, what can God do with their future? Seeing in his kingdom. Seeing in his kingdom. He goes on to verse 4. He said, we must work, Jesus speaking, the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He goes on to verse 6, and look what he says. When he had said this, Jesus spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and spread the mud on the man's eyes. Never kid yourself. Jesus is weird, folks. <laughs> okay, let's just be honest. Let's just open it up. Weird is not a derogatory term. Weird means he's very unusual, and he never does anything that we think he's going to do. He's highly weird. Jesus goes to some dirt, spits in it, 
makes a, cu- a cake, puts it on the man's eyes, tells him to go wash in a pool and come back. And here's what's so amazing. The man does it. That's bizarre, folks. And here's what I want you to see. The man doesn't ask to be healed. The man does not ask to be healed. Jesus walks up to a man who is born blind. He sees him before he sees him. He takes some dirt. He spits in it. He makes some mud. He rubs it on his eyes. He tells him to go wash. And the man comes back seeing. Folks, what is happening? Uh, One of the great commentators, he's an early church father, Irenaeus, he said this. And listen to me. Oh, this will preach. He said, he makes clay on the ground and touches this man's face with it as a way of showing everyone there that day that these hands who put mud on his eyes are the same hands that created him in his mother's wombs. And the same breath that was breathed the spirit of life into this man in the beginning is the same breath that's touching him today. And what's he trying to say? What is wrong and what is wrong with his life and what is sin has in his life and what sin has done against him? I don't care. I'm going to come and I'm going to touch it and I'm going to still make him and create in him something more beautiful than he ever dreamed. I don't care what sin's done against somebody. I don't care how much abuse they've gone through. I don't know how care how putrid and wrong and backwards this generation is. I'm a God who does not start some things and then end some, and not in some things. I don't start some neighborhoods and run out of money and go into foreclosure. If I am the builder of your life, I start something and I complete what I start. I don't care what's happened against you. I don't care what's happened in your marriage. I don't care what sins have come against you. I am the creator and I see you while you're blind and I continue to put my hands on you. That's the gospel. Woo, I'm so glad God is not scared of dirty hands. He just keeps on putting his hands on me and keep on putting his hand and takes things away that don't belong. And he keeps refining and keeps making mouth. Why? Because this is our God. The creator is continuing his creation. What if you saw your, your neighbors like that? Woo! Oh, he's not done with you yet. He's not done with me yet. He's just creating you. The creator who created you 28 years ago, he's still creating you. He's still making something out of you. He's still doing something in your life you never can perceive. Why? Because you see it because his judgment has come in your life. He's blinded you to the things you don't need to see, and he enables you to see what he wants you to see. This is Jesus. He's healing the man he's created. And what is Jesus doing? He's trying to show you the play on Elisha and Naaman. You remember Elisha? He did the same thing to Naaman. And he tells him to go wash. But the only difference is Naaman grumbled. This man doesn't grumble. he got some mud on his face. He goes and washes off in a pool. And he comes back seeing. Now look at verse 8. This is so powerful. So we had the disciples grid, right? He sinned or his parents sinned. There's only two options. Now we got a new group coming in. It's called a crowd. The people. And some were saying, look at verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar. Everybody say beggar. They began to ask, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? This is their lens. This is their lens. They're not able to see anybody else. What is their lens? They can only see what they've known about him previously. He's just a beggar. They're just focused on his past. They're focused on what he's done. They're focused on how they know him. They define his very identity by what he used to do, by who he used to be, by previously what he was. And this is all they're able to see. This man is now seeing, and they're still calling him a beggar. Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? This is what they say. They have only see what they've known 
known about him in his past. They don't see his present and they don't see his future of what God has done. And let me tell you, that's when you know you don't see what God sees. When all you know about someone previously is all you see. You want a litmus test of whether or not you see with the eyes of God? When you see somebody, do you see them only what they've done previously? Or do you see them as the God who's making them in their present and the God who is making them in their future? Folks, that's that's a whole lot better. Are you looking at someone and seeing what Jesus sees? Or are you looking like the crowds who can only define him by what he's previously done? How many years he's previously been involved in in sin or, or, or unrighteousness or whatever it is, wickedness. Notice that. They have this lens. I'm here to tell you, folks, you are not who your experiences have made you to be. There is one. Why are you not who your experiences made you to be? Because there is one who is greater than what's happened to you. There is one who is greater than what can happen to you and what's happened to you. And it's and, and no one you ever meet is simply the sum of what experiences they have. No one you meet is simply the sum of the things that have been done against them. Their past does not tell you who they are, folks. Your past does not dictate who your future is. Why? Because there's one who's in the midst of your past. He's in the midst of your present. He's in the midst of your future. And he's making you and making them into something more than they ever knew they could be. That's why you never consult your past to dictate or determine your future. Because God is operating in your past. He's operating in your present. And he's operating in your future. You see that grid work? Who needs to be blinded? Disciples do. And crowds do so far. Both need to be blinded. And we get a third group here in a minute. There's even worse. They have a worse framework. Go on to verse 8. Then verse 9. Some were saying, now the crowd's divided. Some said, oh, that's the man, beggar. And others saying, no, it's someone like him. <laughs> Can I just say something real quick? Miracles do not convince those who do not have faith. Were they convinced? And this is the exact same man who they saw begging the day before. Hours before. Miracles do not convince those who do not have faith. And I grew up in a tradition where we talk as if signs and wonders are going to shut the mouth of every doubter and every atheist and every protester and convince everybody that the gospel we preach is truth. Miracles are not intended by God to win arguments. Miracles are intended by God to transform people. God says to the rich man in hell in Luke 16, Oh, if I go back to my family, i got to tell them not to come here to hell. And he says, Nope, they have Moses and the prophets. And if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, even if I resurrect you from the dead, they will not believe. Why? Because miracles do not convince those who do not already have faith. They still do not believe what this man has experienced. They still do not believe what Jesus has done in this man's life. So the crowd is divided about who even this man is. Not only do they question the miracle, their question is identity. He goes on. I'm the man. <laughs> Yay! Hey, crowds! They split 50 50. Oh, that's not him. Oh, that is him. Oh, I am. Look, I was the beggar. So he goes on to verse 10. I want you to see this. You ready? But they kept asking him, How were your eyes opened? How? In other words, their grid distorts what is happening. If you want to know the how question, here's what you know the how question reveals it reveals the way you think the world works. Because they thought the world worked this way. Sinners don't get healed, but this not makes sense. How did this happen? I know in my mind, sinners do not get healed. So they couldn't understand beyond their grid work of how this happened. How did this happen? There's the framework. I know the how question always reveals the way you think the world works. 
How? How did he get blessed and I didn't? That's the way you think the world works. How? It's always reveals that. So notice, he goes on, and this is so powerful, verse 11. He answered, this is the man who's now seeing. The man called Jesus. There's going to be four titles that this man who was once blind is now seeing gives to Jesus. And I want you to see the progression of how these Jesus plays out. The first time he calls him, the man called Jesus. The man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And then I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. <laughs> How do you not love this story? Isn't it amazing? Hey, brother, how did you get healed? Well, this dude walked up to me. He put some mud on my eyeballs. He told me to go wash the pool of Siloam. I came back. I'm seeing. Where's the man? I don't know. I don't know. You know like I know. And notice, is so amazing. They're not satisfied with his not knowing. So they go into verse 13. They brought the Pharisees to the Pharisees, the man who had formerly been blind. <laughs> There's the Pharisees. Now we're going to see the Pharisees grid and filter. Now it was a Sabbath there. Everybody say Sabbath. When Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. In other words, he is not supposed to heal on the Sabbath. So we got a new grid work coming in. And Jesus says this one's wrong too. There's not a group that's right. And the Pharisees come and they got A or B. Their grid works just like the disciples. He sinned or the man sinned. Their parents sinned. And they say, okay, since he was healed on the Sabbath, does the Sabbath veto Jesus' miracle? Or does the miracle prove that this man Jesus is actually not a sinner? And they're divided. Folks, we got disciples who are divided whether or not this man sinned or his parents sinned. We got a crowd saying, oh, it is him. No, that's not him. That's somebody who looks like him. Now we got Pharisees coming in saying, oh, does the miracle veto because it's the Sabbath? Or maybe that means that he actually is God. Notice this. And all of them are wrong. Every one of them are wrong. And he goes on. And he gets abbreviated story, Right? Because they brought him to him, and they said this. In verse 15, the Pharisees also began to ask him how he'd received his sight. And he said to them, anytime you get asked something multiple times, you get a little bit shorter because you get impatient. Notice how he gets shorter. He says, he put my eyes, eyes, I wash, and now I see. What do you want from me? Okay, that's what he's saying. And some of the Pharisees said, this man's not from God. That's he talking about Jesus, not this man born blind. For he does not observe the Sabbath. This man, Jesus, is not from God because he does not observe the Sabbath. There's the grid. And they were divided. Does it veto the miracle? Or truly is he from God? And they said to the blind man, what do you say about him? If he was opening your eyes, it was your eyes he opened. And notice what the man says. He is a prophet. He's a prophet. So he went from the man named Jesus to being a prophet. And look at this. His, I don't have to say, for the sake of time, I have to read it, but they, they, they take him to his parents, and they go get his parents and say, well, you talk to, to us about your son. Was he really blind or not blind? And the parents bug out answering. I don't know if you've ever done student ministry this way. They bug out answering because they have a fear of losing their place in the synagogue, and they won't speak. Maybe that's my 12 years of grid work of youth ministry. I don't know. And maybe I'm seeing it through that. But, but they won't speak. They bug out because they don't want to lose their place in the synagogue. So here's what they do. They come back. And here's what the scripture says. Verse 24. He still being there for his parents said he's of age. Ask him. Go to verse 24. And look at this. They come back a second time. And they called the man who had been blind. There's the framework. 
still blind. That's all they see, the past. And they said to him, give glory to God, a.k.a. tell the truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God. You better tell the truth. We know, underline that, we know that this man who? Jesus is a sinner. They know Jesus is a sinner because nobody can heal somebody on the Sabbath. Notice that. They know Jesus is a sinner. And he answered, that's the man, I don't know whether he's a sinner. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. I'll own what I don't know. You obviously know because you're better than me or whatever, Pharisees. You obviously know he's a sinner, but I don't know he's a sinner. But I do know this. I was blind a couple hours ago. This man spit on my, on my eyes, told me to go wash. I came back, and now I see. Let me, let me tell you, that's what I do know. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How? They cannot see past their grid. How did this? I know how the world works, and this is not how the world works. How did he do this to you? So he answered them, and this is where kind of an epiphany goes off, right? This man doesn't see them steal. You'll notice this. He said, I've told you already, and you won't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? And notice this humor. Do you also want to become one of his disciples? <laughs> and you're meant to laugh because they want to do anything but be his disciples, but he don't understand. He don't even understand that they're against Jesus. He sees, but he still don't see. He sees, but he still don't see. This is amazing. Then they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we, notice this, are a disciple of Moses. And he goes on, And we know, there it is, that God has spoken to Moses, but it's for this man, he's talking about Jesus. We don't know where he comes from. And then the man gets an epiphany. Here's this epiphany. He says, oh, here's an astonishing thing. You don't know where he comes from. That's Jesus. And yet he opened my eyes. We know, that's me, you, and Pharisees, that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man, Jesus, were not from God, he could do nothing. Epiphany. Yes. Now, now preacher boy, blind man's now got a little bit of preacher in him. And the verse 34 says, and here's the self-righteousness. When you were born entirely in sin and you're trying to teach us. Pause. You ready? The greatest measure of your standing before the Lord is who will you let teach you? I want to say it again. The greatest litmus test of your standing before the Lord is who will you let teach you? Oh, I ain't going to let him teach me. He's not known the Lord as long as I am. What is that self-righteous, isn't it? You see it? Well, who's teaching today? Well, I don't know. Well, if he's teaching. That's your greatest measure. What's your standing for, Lord? Who do you let teach you? Do you let your kids teach you? My kids teach me more than I teach them every day. It's unbelievable. It really is. And notice this. And they drove him out. They drove him out. They got rid of him. And look at verse 35. Notice the man still doesn't see clearly. Even though he's received healing, he doesn't understand who's acted on him. And, and, and he was still in a grid. The disciples have a grid. The Pharisees have a grid. And please understand that this young man does not come to faith yet. All he does is, is he agrees with the second group. All he does is say, oh, he has to be from God. The man named Jesus, prophet, he must be from God. 
That's the three terms that are defining Jesus in this man's life. But notice he still doesn't understand. He has no revelation. Everybody say revelation. He can see, but he hasn't had a revelation. He still doesn't see. And go to verse 35. Then this is a replay of Eden. And they drove him out. And Jesus heard they had driven him out. And when he found him, so Jesus comes and finds the man whose eyes have been opened. Adam and Eve sinned and hid themselves in shame. And God walks in the cool of garden because their eyes have been this is, this is Eden right here, verse 35. And so Jesus comes to him, and notice this. This is what he says. He answered, and who is he? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus is saying of himself. And he answered, and who is he, sir? Wait, I thought we thought he believed yet. No, he don't believe yet, does he? It's possible to be blind and see and still not believe. The man named Jesus, the prophet he must be from God. And he answered, tell me so I believe him. And Jesus said to him, you have seen him. And the one speaking with you is he. Wow. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. I want to point out the story with this man. It began with Jesus told me. It became he must be a prophet. Then he has to be from God. And now it's Lord I believe and I worship. But yet even still folks, and I know this is hard for us to understand, in the gospel of John that doesn't mean that he gets it yet. It doesn't mean he gets it yet. You say Craig how do you know this? Well in John chapter 2, the first miracle of Jesus, he turned water into wine at the wedding at Cana in Galilee. The Bible said they saw the miraculous deeds and the works that he did because they followed what his mother said. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. And they're pouring water and it turns into wine. But Jesus, the Bible says in John 2.25, did not believe them for he knew what was in their hearts. Folks, that is a crazy scripture. They saw his signs. They saw what he had done. Think about this. They believe in him, but Jesus knows it's not yet really belief. Don't we see this later when the crowds follow him a second time for another lunch because they just are preoccupied with the bread in their belly and not the one who multiplied it? Folks, this is, this is what the Gospels tell us. And so they still do not see. So even when you move like this guy from, from he's a man named Jesus to a prophet to he must be from God to I believe and I worship, according to John, you still don't see yet. Now, if that doesn't unsettle you, then I'm not communicating or you're not hearing because everything we know about, at least how I was nurtured in the Christian faith, is that when you finally see and you know, you finally see him and you know that from that point that you know that you know that you know that you know, you never have any more trouble in your relationship with the Lord anymore. But that's just not true. That's just not true, folks. Because there's a man who has been healed, he has seen, and he's worshipped him, and yet he still doesn't believe. In the sense that Jesus is saying. That's what John's trying to get to. Look at verse 39. And it's the verse we read. That's where we're point in the scripture. He says, so Jesus made this statement. I came into this world for judgment. Everybody say judgment. So that those who do not see may. And those who do see may become blind. This is Jesus. What he is saying. Maybe. Notice this. I love this. If, if surely. Verse 40. Go to the verse 40 real quick. He, he goes. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him. Surely we're not the blind ones. Are we? What sobers me when I read this story. And I read a lot. It's always the people that are sure it's not them that Jesus is speaking to. And there are no exceptions to this in the Gospels. The people Jesus calls to repentance are never the ones who think they're being spoken to. 
And I can imagine some of you are sitting in this room today and saying, man, I wish sister so-and-so was here to hear this message. I wish brother so-and-so was here. To... And maybe brother so-and-so don't need to hear it, but you do. Maybe sister so-and-so don't need to hear it, but you do. It's always the one Jesus is speaking to that don't realize he's speaking to them. Surely we aren't the blind ones, are we? That's what the Pharisees say. He goes on verse 41. He said to them, the Pharisees, if you were blind, you wouldn't have any sin. Notice this. But now that you see or say we see, your sin or guilt remains. Wow, folks. If you would not have claimed to know, then your guilt would be gone. But now that you claim that you know and you see, your guilt remains. Think about that. You remember the Matthew chapter 20, the parable of Jesus of the kingdom. Again, he says a father has two sons and he sends them out to the vineyard. He goes to his first son and says, son, I want you to go to the vineyard. And the first son says, yeah, sure, dad, I love you. I'll go into the field. And the other one in verbatim says, oh, shut up, dad. You get somebody else. You work in your own field. I've got my own stuff to do. And he says, which of the two sons went and worked in the field? And he says, the one who said he would not. Why? Because there is this element to truth that when we really accept the truth, don't miss this, and we truly count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus, we will not respond, yes, Lord, I will do it very quickly, but we will take time to think about it. We will take time. It's almost like a pushback to say, no, I won't do it, but now I will do it go read that story jesus says it's the one who says he wouldn't do it but then he ends up doing it why because the dead giveaway you don't understand what's being asked of you is if you say yes immediately the dead giveaway you don't understand what jesus is saying is if you just say yes instantly look at luke chapter 8 i wish i could do this we could go through every parable really in the new testament and see how this is the case the parable of the sower there's four types of seed the first seed goes down in the ground and it's the first one that springs up quickly why because it has no root but guess what it's also the first one that dies it withers why because people who respond quickly to what they think jesus is saying are only responding quickly because they don't understand what's being asked if you really understand what's being asked if what jesus is saying to you the quick response is always a sign i have a failure to grasp what is being said because if you hear the gospel correctly correctly it's no none of this easy believism that we see on christian television today like your life is going to be good if you just say yes to jesus it's going to be roses no that's not the gospel and that's not the easy believism no no, no. when you hear the gospel correct go the extra mile forgive 70 times seven turn the other cheek love your enemies then you say oh i need to think about this a minute that's why he said before you build count the what Luke 6. Don't stop. Why? Because the Christian way is a narrow way. It's not broad. And few find it, not many. So notice. Isaiah 42, and I'm almost finished. Look at this promise. It's so powerful. This is the prophecy of the son of suffering, which is ultimately Jesus. But this is 550 years before Jesus would come. And all throughout that chapter, if you'll go read it, every time they say, you'll know the son of suffering's come because the blind will see. Everybody say the blind We'll see. He says, when blind people start seeing, that means the son of suffering's in your presence. But then he gets to the end of the chapter, Tim. It's so powerful. And he gets to verse 18. And I want you to see this. Speaking of Jesus, he said, listen, you that are deaf. Isn't that oxymoronic? And you that are blind, look up and see. Isn't that oxymoronic? Paradoxical. And then he says... 
Who is blind but my servant? He's talking to Jesus. Jesus is blind? Yep, I'm going to show you. Who is blind like my servant or deaf like my messenger or my sin? Who is blind like my dedicated one or blind like the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but he does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. What are you saying, Craig? Here's the odd truth about Jesus. It's not just what he sees and he hears. It's what he can't see and what he can't hear. It's that he is blind in just the ways he needs to be blind and deaf in just the ways he needs to be deaf. And that's what makes it possible for him to see what he needs to see and to hear what he needs to hear. And there's so many examples of this, folks. Zacchaeus is up a tree in Luke 19, and Jesus comes walking into Jericho, and everybody sees the man as a tax collector who has sold his identity as a Jew to take care of Rome and its taxes. And Jesus says, come down. I'm going to go to your house. And he looks at him in the midst of that crowd who says, you've sold your identity as a Jew, and he calls him a son of Abraham. The world and the crowd saw a tax collector. Jesus saw a son of God, claimed by the purpose of God for his designed purpose in his life. He was blind to the things he needed to be blind to so he could see people in the way that God wants us to see people, folks. He was deaf to the things he needed to be deaf to so he could hear the things that God wants us to hear. There's a prostitute washing his feet. She's down at his feet and everybody sees a woman of promiscuity. Everybody sees a woman of sexual brokenness. He sees a daughter of God. He sees nothing that everybody else sees because he's blind and the ways he needs to be blind and he's deaf in the way he needs to be deaf so the judgment of the Lord is to blind us to what we don't need to see and open our eyes to what we need to see folks this changes the game with how we're compassionate for the people around us this is what God does why did he let lepers touch him because he never saw leprosy he saw a son or a daughter of God who needed the healing touch of God who needed the image of God restored why did he let a Gentile woman receive crumbs free from the table because he did not see people the way everyone else Saul, who's blind but my servant, who's deaf like my messenger. He saw the woman with the blood issue of blood who reached through the crowd, 12 years of a blood issue. She touched him. Strength comes into her body. She goes down and she falls down and he turns around and he says, hey, who touched me? And the disciples say, what do you mean? Everybody's touching. He said, no, I felt power go out from my body. And when she could remain hidden no longer, the Bible says he looked down and he saw her. I wonder if anybody saw her for 12 years. Wow. And he calls her daughter of God because he did not see her blood issue. He saw her. This is seeing in his kingdom. So I'm going to leave you with four points, real simple. Number one, we will never see the kingdom until we're blind to the systems of the world. We will never see the kingdom until we're blind to the systems of the world. Until we just can't see what the world wants us to see, we will never see what the kingdom's meant to be. Everybody say eunuch. I think we have to be eunuchs. What do you mean? You remember the story of Esther and the eunuch? The eunuch was brought before the king. Esther was to be brought before the king, and the eunuch was to go into her chambers and beautify her and ready her. And you know what I felt like the Lord said to me in that, Craig? Until you're a eunuch, you cannot minister to my bride. Because when you get in the midst of ministering to her, you'll start thinking that she's for you and not for me. You'll start taking the church to be for you and not realize your job as a pastor is to beautify her for him. 
He is the bridegroom. It's not using ministry as an opportunity to make my name great. When the Lord unicizes you, if that's a word, when he cuts you and, and, and pulls away from you and blinds you to the things you don't need to see, you won't look at the church anymore and use it as an opportunity to make your name great. You'll use the church as an opportunity to make his name great, to beautify his bride for the bridegroom, that his bride might be spotless before the groom. We have to be blind to what the world says matters or we'll never see the kingdom. Number two, we have to recognize the work of God among us will never look like we expect it to. Can I say that again? Because that'll help somebody personally. We have to recognize the work of God among us will never look like what we expect it to. Here's the strange thing about God. He's always faithful. He will never violate his faith. He's not duplicitous. He will never violate his character. He's faithful, but he's not predictable. You know what that means? God would never do anything that's not a surprise because he's a living God. He never does anything that's not a surprise. What are you saying, Craig? So whatever you're expecting God to do in your life, and I believe everybody's expecting God to do something, he, when he does it, it will be better, but it will not be in the way you expect it. It will not come in the way you expect him to do it because he's living. He's not static, and he can't be held down to a sheet of paper and put in a nice little box. He's a living God. He's faithful, but he's not predictable. That's why he said in Isaiah 43:18, we love to use this verse on January 1. He said, "Don't remember the former things or consider the things of old. I am about to do, come on somebody, a new thing. I am about to do a New thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Now that's not a shocking verse until you go back and read it this afternoon. In Isaiah 43, he tells the Israelites to forget he delivered them out of Egypt, to forget that he went through the Red Sea with them, and to forget that he took them into the promised land. That don't sound like things that God would want his people to forget. But he says, it's not about what I did in the past. It's all about who I am. And too many churches and too many people are trying to recreate and regrab a hold of what I've done in the past and God says I, I will not do things the way you think I will do them. I'm faithful but I'm not predictable. So forget the way I've moved in the past and recognize that I am doing a new thing among you. I will do a new thing in your life. A new thing in your family. A new thing in your marriage. A new thing in your church. A new thing in your movement and we don't like that because most of my time I spend time praying. I pray about something I know to look for rather than what he wants. And God says stop doing it. Stop praying for what you think you need and what you want to look for. Pray that I forget all these other things and realize he is the Lord, folks. His character is unchanging. And the God who took you through out of Egypt, the God who took you through the water, the God who took you into the promised land is the God who will operate right now in your present and in your future. Listen, the work of God among us will never be like what we expect it to be. This is the kingdom, number three. We will never see people rightly. Until we're blind to the issues that define people in worldly terms. I'll say that again. We will never see people rightly until we're blind to the issues. If all you ever see are tight jeans, tight jeans, no tie, no tie, no tie. You'll never recognize the presence of the Lord. And God can be right in front of you. Right in front of you. And you can be saying, God, deliver me. God, help me. God, speak to me. And God says, I'm speaking to you right now. And you do not hear me. There's a grid in front of you. I'm convinced so many of us are praying for a move of God when we don't recognize the move of God that's happening right in front of us. Right in our church. Right in our family. Right in the people we love. Why? Because we don't see people rightly. We define them in worldly terms. God is doing miracles. We pray 
for something we know to look for rather than what God wants to do. Jesus sees a woman in adultery as the image of God and not in her sin, folks. Do you remember when they brought the woman to him and they said, we're going to stone her and kill her? If they would have had their way, she would have died in her sins and went to hell and they would have walked away feeling right about righteousness and unrighteousness. Nothing inherently wrong, right? But God's not just concerned about that. He's concerned about sin because he's concerned about sinners. He hates sin, yes, but he hates sin because he knows what sin does to who? To us, folks. And until you let someone's identity be in the Lord more important than what sin has done to them or how they've sinned, you'll never set them free from sin. Did you hear me? Until you let their identity as a child of God be more important to you than the sin they're doing or the sin they committed against you, you will never help free them from sin. People say, love the sinner and hate the sin. Yeah, until you see the person as a child of God in the midst of sin, you can never see them free from their sin. And anytime you confront sin in somebody's life and they know you don't care about them, you harden their heart to the gospel. I'm going to say it again. Anytime you confront sin in someone's life and they know you don't care about them, you've hardened their heart to to salvation. Fourthly and finally, notice this one. We witness faithfully to the Lord and the authority of his word just by acknowledging the difference between his word and sometimes our understanding of it. That's what we see in John 9. There's a difference between what God is saying and then what I'm hearing sometimes. And the question is, am I going to be aligned with what God's saying? The prophet in Isaiah said there's a plumb line that comes down the wall. And every day you should come up and say, am what I'm hearing truly what God's doing? How aligned am I? And folks, that alignment has to happen by you constantly being in a state of humility and hunger to constantly grow and learn. And if you always think you know what you know and you're not ever open in a posture of humility, then you miss it altogether. And what are you saying, Craig? Whatever it is I think... I know if I root my relationship to God in what I know, then I am a Pharisee by very definition, even if I'm right about what I know. Why? Because it's only when knowledge that I have is bathed, wrapped, and covered in love that then I'm able to be a true believer. Why? Because accusation without love is the devil. People think, oh, I'm going to speak the truth in love. There is, all, there is no truth except truth in love. That's why he said in 1 Corinthians 8, I read this last scripture. It's so powerful. He said, anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge. Let's don't just read over that verse. Think how powerful he's saying. If you think you know something, you don't have the knowledge. Why? But anyone who loves God is known by him for knowledge puffs. But love builds up. It edifies. So only when knowledge is bathed in love that people are transformed, folks, The devil is truth without love. That's called accusation. The blind man, what separated him from everybody else in the story is he's the only one who owned what he did not know. Everybody else thought they knew. Everybody else thought they had a grid work that was right, but he owned what he did not know. And let me tell you, folks, the temptation of the enemy, listen so clearly, if he can't keep you from experiencing the depths of God, he will push you into the depths of God, hoping you become prideful about being in the depths of God, and now you missed it because you know. If he can't stop you from being a worshiper, he'll push you into the depths of the worship of God and make you become proud as a worshiper, and you're right back to a Pharisee. If he can't keep you from knowing the the scripture of God, I, I, I... 
how many times have we argued with people who have a theological framework that says, I know what I know what I know. And everything in their relationship comes out of a place of knowledge and not out of love, folks. If God could get our community to have a baptism of humility today that always takes the posture that says, God, I think I know, but I really want to know. Rather than I know that I know that I know that I know, then what happens is something in that moment attracts grace and it attracts people to our community who need grace. Our world does not need people in the church to claim to have answers to every question they're facing. They need people who are willing to say, I don't know when I don't know. I will walk with you. I will pursue with you. I will seek after God with you. And it's in that place of humility that God's grace is attracted. Notice that. God, I don't know, but I really want to know. Are you living out of a place of knowledge and not love? Are you living out of a place of pride and not brokenness? If God can't keep, anybody can't keep you from being an intercessor, he'll make you fall flat on your face and be prideful that you're interceding while the rest of the world is doing their stuff. And you missed it. There are people on fire for God all over this nation. But they're on fire for God out of knowledge and not love. And they actually think they're advancing God's kingdom, but they're hindering God's kingdom because they're prideful. You understand that? Because it's out of knowledge and not love. Not love for people, not love for God. So I asked the Lord, would you help us this morning to grow quiet in prayer? humble ourselves and say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Open the eyes of my heart, God. I want to show you a quick video as our team comes on stage, and then I want to close after this video. I'm going to pray for you. But this young man, I want you to see, is a person who knows what he doesn't know and sees maybe what his physical eyes can't see. I want you to introduce you to this story of this great young man. Watch this quick video. asked to introduce Christopher and give a little bit of a, a timeline on his life and uh, it's hard to keep my composure uh, talking about Christopher's story but he was born in May of uh, 2011 2001, 2001. <laughs> thank you he can do it better than I can I have to go back a few years yeah and he it, his mother was on, on drugs, Oxycontin and cocaine, and um, he was a, a nephew of ours. And we went down to Florida and took him out of the foster care system in uh, August of 2002. And uh, he's been a blessing to our family, and uh, he, he loves to share his gifts. And this March, he was kind of discovered by the union leader and all the local media outlets in Boston. And uh, he's... Uh, He's been singing a lot of patriotic songs, but to back up a few years, when in 2004, Christopher was on our, his first mission trip with Eight Days of Hope. And at four years old, he went down to the front of the, uh, the music ministry and uh, they handed him a microphone and he sang the song he's gonna sing tonight, Open the Eyes of My Heart.
He can't see, but he, he sees. And he owns what he does not know. That's all Jesus asks. And that's what his judgment has come in this room to do today. To blind those who think they see. And for those who don't see, they'll enable you to see. I don't know about you, but our world would be a totally different place if Christians would not see people in the way that the world defines them. But they would see people broken and shattered as people and bearers of the image of God who desperately need the word of grace. so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. God bless you.